All right. Um, reading from Esther 9, 20 to 28. I'll just give you a few moments either to find it in your Bible or device, and otherwise it will be up on the screen. And then we'll be reading from Colossians 2, 13 to 23. And in case you don't know, yes, I am Judy, and I'm married to Ed, the player. All right, I'm reading from Esther 9, starting at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as a time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as a month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants." Then I'm going to the Colossians reading, reading from verse 2, 13 to 23. 13 to 15, sure. Sorry. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Judy, thanks so much. Well, friends, as we get started, I want you to discuss a very simple question with the person next door to you. Um, Nothing terribly threatening, nothing terribly personal, just, I think it's, oh no, we might not have, yes, we do have it on the board, yep, yep, what are some of the things that you enjoy celebrating? Like, they might be the big ticket items of, you know, birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, those sorts of things, it might also just be the the little things, you you celebrate with your mates because your team had a win on the weekend, whatever it might be, Um, 60 seconds, just to talk with the person next door to you, what are the things that you enjoy celebrating? All right, friends, I'm sure there's more that could be said, but I'll bring us back together now and let me lead us in prayer. (laughs) Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus you give us so much to celebrate. We want to ask you to shape our hearts and our minds to share your passions and your delights, the things that you celebrate, that in that we might grow in thankfulness and in joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, friends, uh, there aren't many things that Aussies in general like celebrating more than the underdog coming out on top. I was reflecting on this, thinking through what are some of the big underdog moments, particularly in Australian sport, and you might be able to remember that far back, but I reckon one of the, one of the great underdog moments has got to be Australia's first Winter Olympic gold medals. Does any of you remember uh, short course speed skater Steve Bradbury kind of accidentally won the gold medal because he was coming last by so far that when all of the other races in front of him fell down like dominoes taking each other out, all he had to do was, was stay on his feet and just glide on through to gold medal glory. And Australians loved it because we love to celebrate the underdog moment, which sounds very random for a Sunday morning. But we might come to the book of Esther and think, well, this sounds like this is an underdog victory. This, this is great. It's an underdog victory. We actually need to see that there's something much bigger than that going on. This is a total reversal of fortunes. There are two words that I want you to to keep in mind in our time together today. Reversal that brings about rescue. I'm going to give you an eight-minute summary of what's happened in the book of Esther up until the point that that Jude read for us this morning, which is really kind of the, the culmination, the summary of it right at the end of the book. So... King Xerxes of Persia, he's promoted a man named Haman the Agagite uh, to the highest office in the land and he said that everyone should bow down and honour Haman. But Mordecai the Jew, well he refused to honour Haman and when Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he was furious. Didn't want to just kill Mordecai but all of God's people. We get a bunch of dates and they're important. On the 13th day of the first month, Haman sent an order throughout the entire empire to kill and destroy and annihilate all the Jews, men and women and children, and to plunder their goods. All of that was to happen 11 months later, on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year. Now, in response, Queen Esther, a Jew herself, she risked her life and approached King Xerxes who spared her life and and he listened to her request. Well, rather than just asking it up front, if we read through the chapters that unfold in the book of Esther, she is very shrewd. She invited her husband, King Xerxes, and Haman himself to a banquet later that day. Xerxes loved to party, so this pleased him greatly. And he promised to give her anything that she wanted. But she was still very shrewd. Having secured Xerxes' favour, she didn't come up front with the request then. She said, no, 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 come to another banquet the following day. Now, that night, the king was having trouble sleeping and he turned to the ancient royal cure for insomnia. He had the chronicles of his, of his reign read to him. Boring reading, bound to put you to sleep. Anyway, there he was in the middle of the night And suddenly he discovered that this man called Mordecai had exposed an assassination attempt against him a few years ago. We we learned about that a couple of weeks ago. But Mordecai had never been honoured for it. So in the morning, Xerxes set about to correct the record, correct this oversight. And we have this wonderful coincidence because he wanted to know if there were any officials out there in the courtyard that could help him resolve this problem. And who had just walked in the front door but Haman, the very man that wanted to murder Mordecai. Now, I've already told you that there's a bunch of episodes in Esther that are meant to be a little bit funny. It's kind of dark comedy, but we're meant to be chuckling away. So I'm actually going to read for you um, just this section that comes in the middle of the story of Esther that starts to see 
not only the comedy of it, but the reversals that God is bringing about. It's on the screen for you. I'm reading from Esther chapter 6, verse 3 to 11. So, the king has realised that Mordecai has saved his life. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked him. Well, nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. So the king's attendants said to him, well, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now, Haman thought to himself, well, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, well, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse and he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. And we should be chuckling, we should be thinking, how sweet is the irony? How's that for reversing fortunes? Mordecai was about to get impaled on a pole because he had failed to honour Haman and instead... Mordecai is elevated in a different kind of way with an honour that Haman, Haman had thought was coming his way. And to make it even sweeter, it's Haman who's doing the honouring. Anyway, back to the story. All of this was taking place on the day of Esther's second banquet. And Haman's now running late for it. Well, that evening at the banquet, Esther finally makes her great request to the king, asking her, him to save her life. Because, she tells him, I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. Now, of course, the king is outraged. Who would dare to do such a thing to his queen? Well, Esther points the finger at Haman, who's sitting there at the dinner table. Haman is terrified. The king is outraged. And he's looking for a way to deal with Haman when one of his servants notes that, oh, there's a massive pole in Haman's front yard that he was going to stick Mordecai on. And so the king orders Haman to be impaled on it instead. It's a second great reversal. Not only has Mordecai been honoured instead of killed, but in fact Haman has suffered the fate that he planned for Mordecai. In fact, Xerxes takes the reversal even further because he takes all of the riches and the honour that Haman had had as the highest, most, most important man in the kingdom and gave it to Mordecai. But the Jewish people are still at risk because the king's edict stands and cannot be reversed. And you know, Xerxes is looking pretty foolish. He's, he's backed himself into a corner here that he can't get out of. So, well, what he does do is issue a counter edict. You know, trumps one law with another law. When you can't hit delete, well, let's just make another law that kind of tries to make up for it. And so this gives the Jewish people 
permission to defend themselves on that fateful day in the 12th month, 11 months to come. And that second edict is now distributed just as quickly by horseback throughout the entire land. And we need to kind of picture the chaos. Like this is, this is before the internet and emails and horses are, are running right across this massive empire, one of the largest empires the world has ever seen, five days apart. First, one horse goes out saying, kill all the Jews in 11 months' time. Five days later, there's another dude on horseback running across to the, the far ends of the Persian Empire saying, you know what, that edict that went out there, well, well, now there's another one that says actually the Jews are allowed to take up arms to defend themselves. If you were kind of some lowly, thoughtful, considerate uh, official in some backwater corner of the Persian Empire, this wouldn't just be plain confusing. It would be quite terrifying if the very task that you have been given is to maintain law and order. And now you've just got these laws coming at you that seem destined to create disorder. But actually, one of the, the really, really lovely little surprises that comes along the way, we read about in chapter 8, verse 17. Because we've been told that there's 11 months between when these laws are being sent out to the land and, and, and when they'll actually be put into place. And we read in chapter 8, verse 17, that in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came... There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating because now they can defend themselves. And we read, many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. You see, in this time between the issuing of the double decrees and their enactment 11 months later, many people became Jews. Now, if we think of Jewishness is just an ethnic marker. You think, well, that doesn't make sense. You can't change your ethnicity. But we need to remember that in the Bible, this, this is a term for the people of God's promises. And so in this time between the announcement, well, of, of, of a battle between the people of God and their enemies, many of their neighbours saw that the safest place to take refuge was actually with God's people under the promises of God. So then in Esther chapter 9, just ahead of what we read about today, we can read of that fateful day in the 12th month when God's people were attacked by their enemies and they defended themselves against those attacks. And it is brutal. We're told of the body counts. In Susa, the capital city of the empire, in Susa itself, 800 men killed. In the provinces of the empire, 75,000 men killed. And we should find this really confronting, that we are, we are told a story of God's people killing thousands of people. But there are actually a few really important details to note. You see, it seems that only the men who attacked God's people were killed when the law that King Xerxes had made gave permission for the killing of their women and children. In their self-defence, God's people had been measured and restrained. We're also specifically and, and actually repeatedly told that the Jews did not take any of the plunder, which, again, Xerxes' law had given them permission to do. In their self-defence, there was no self-gain. And we need to remember that the Jewish people only had permission to kill those who attacked them, so as disturbing as the body counts are, it's actually, it's, it's really confronting to recognise that this is just how much violent opposition there was 
to God's people across the empire at that time. But this is the great reversal. God's people faced death and destruction, but in his surprising provision, they were delivered. And the very scheme, the plot of their enemies was turned back against their heads. And in a wonderful twist of irony with a a lovely sense of humour, the festival to mark this occasion, which we've just read about together, it took its name from a word that's not even in the Hebrew language. It was the local word for dice, Purim. Dice because Haman had rolled the dice to determine the date when all of this would take place. And there's just one more lovely coincidence. I said the dates matter. We can so easily overlook this because it's talking about a calendar that we don't recognise. But we are told the date that Haman did roll the dice. The 13th day of the month of Nisan. And that's significant because the 14th day of Nisan is the festival of the Passover. When the Jewish people gathered together to remember and celebrate God's rescue from Egypt. So on the day before they celebrated one great rescue, God was bringing about this really confronting situation of their destruction from which again he would rescue them. Because under the sovereign hand of the hidden God, there is no such thing as chance. We've spent three weeks in the book of Esther and and today we get to the end of it where we see that the whole point of the book of Esther is to explain this festival called Purim, which Jewish people around the world celebrate even today, a celebration of rescue and reversal. The book of Esther is all about getting God's people to remember and to celebrate God's great rescue. And this celebration of rescue points us forward to the ultimate reversal and the ultimate rescue. Now, On the screen behind me, I've got the little diagram that I showed you last week because we were reminded that if we simply try and draw a direct line from the Old Testament and and the book of Esther at this point to us, well, then we get into all sorts of trouble thinking through how this applies to us. You know, maybe we come away from a reading like today, the celebration of Purim, and we start to think, gosh, well, when was the month of that this happened? Turns out it was December. Should we be ditching Christmas and celebrating Purim instead? That's problematic. Instead, the second picture shows us how we should be handling the Old Testament, allowing it to inform us of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us and then reflecting in light of that as to how it impacts us. And what we see there is that Esther is teaching us again and again that God has always been working towards his ultimate project of reversal and rescue. The thing about the storyline of the Bible, you go right back to the start. Ever since Adam and Eve tipped creation on its head, as Forky said, they brought about disorder when they listened to a creature instead of their creator. Well, God has been working towards turning things back to rights. Despite our ingrained rebellion against him, God has taken the initiative and reached out to us We were his enemies who'd love to say nothing more than, well, I did it my way. We would rather pretend that God, well, maybe maybe he's silent because he's not actually there. We would rather pretend that we were free to sit on the throne at the centre of our lives that actually rightly belongs to him. 
You see, even the, the simple reality that, that God came to us in Jesus, that is a part of this great reversal. The God of the universe has so identified with his enemies that he could make us his friends. That's why we read from Colossians chapter 2, just that short passage from verse 13 to 15, one of the great summaries of God's reversals that brings around rescue. On the screen again for us now, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, this is the great reversal that brings about our great rescue. We were dead, but in Christ we are made alive. And there's that phrase in there that just sounds so weird to our modern ears, kind of the, the uncircumcision of your flesh. You might be tempted to go, well, what is that about? Well, it's, it's simply a biblical way of describing our innate desire to be anything other than the people of God. Circumcision was God's sign for those who stood under his promises. In and of ourselves, on our own, we don't naturally want to take shelter there. We were dead in our sins and in our ingrained desire to be apart from God. And God has reversed that by uniting us with His Son. We also saw that other reversal, that the record of of our rebellion, that was nailed to the cross, which is to say, it was nailed on Jesus when He died on the cross. That's the great reversal of my sinfulness, nailed to the cross with the sinless Son of God. And doesn't Esther just give us a wonderful kind of perspective on on all of these reversals that took place at the cross because we read so much about people being impaled on poles right this is this is how how you how you advertise that justice was being done that that criminals will get what is coming for them in an age before tv and facebook apparently you impaled them on poles so that everyone could see it was made a public spectacle of their punishment well the cross the cross of Jesus itself, that was the pole that the enemies of God wanted to impale Jesus on. And yet through God's great wisdom and his power, it was actually the very cause of their downfall. The cross was a public execution meant to be a public statement of dishonour and hopelessness. Whatever you do, don't follow this guy. Instead, it was on that cross that the glory of God's grace and his holiness was seen and it was on that cross that the forces who were opposed to God and his king well they were ultimately shown to be hopeless and helpless and you and I we can be caught up in that if you acknowledge that that Jesus is the king who alone can bring the ultimate relief and deliverance if you trust in Jesus for your rescue then his great reversal becomes your great reversal. Once an enemy of God, either because you hated him or you just wanted to ignore him, now his very child, once dead in your sins, now made alive, once facing his righteous judgment, now delighting in his wonderful mercy. And the book of Esther, it reminds us that that is worth celebrating. 
You see, I began this talk by asking the things that we enjoy celebrating. Sometimes they're just the trivial things. Other times they're the big, you know, the milestone events of life. And this isn't now about beating you up over the head saying, well, you know, footy's not that important, you shouldn't celebrate it. Like, enjoy it. Actually, I think the Bible helps us to see that Christians should be people who celebrate more, even the small things, because we know the biggest thing to celebrate, to celebrate God's great rescue and that's the simple take-home from our third week in Esther it's the take-home of the whole book of Esther that God's people should celebrate God's rescue so for example a few tangible things to think about what about the time that we spend together on Sundays there is nothing trivial about what you are doing as you gather together here this should be you know our weekly celebration as a church a, a family gathered together to celebrate that God has rescued us, that he has brought about his great reversal for us. So when we get together, let's, let's sing like we mean it. Let's, let's be delighted to actually look one another in the eye and to reflect on what it means to have been brought from death to life. Let's celebrate together. But it's not just about Sundays, right? I want to talk to you about our our conversations. How often do we celebrate God's great reversal in our regular conversations? I mean, take our prayers, for example. That celebration of of Purim at the end of the book of Esther, that was about celebrating God's answer to prayer. And wouldn't it be wonderful for us to spend more time talking about the way that God has been answering our prayers too? The simple things, but even the bigger things. I mean, when was the last time that you talked about your own story of rescue and reversal, the way he's answered your prayer for forgiveness and new life? I would love every member here at Trinity Paraka to be able to sum up your own story of God's rescue and reversal for you. Now, some people in kind of Christian jargon, they would would call that their testimony. But in light of Esther, I think we could just We could just think of it as our own personal celebration, remembering God's work of reversal in our own lives and sharing that together. I mean, just even after we finish together our time, our formal time here, why don't you start that conversation off? Just chat to the person next to you. What's your story of God's rescue? Let's share those stories and celebrate it. But finally, there's something else that that came through in that that reading from chapter 9 that Judy brought to us, from the, the very end of the book of Esther, it's, it's, it's so easy to kind of just gloss over. But we all know that celebration is more than just talk. It's more than just lip service. And so I don't think it, that it's an accident that the festival of Purim, well, that was characterised by generosity. Go back and read over it again. That these were generous celebrations together, generous with gifts to others. Because that is the, that's the outflow of a heart that knows the surprising generosity of God to us. How do we celebrate today? You know, we celebrate with parties, we celebrate with gifts, right? With generosity to others because at its core, we, we know what it is to have received generosity. And I wonder whether that's where the rubber really hits the road for us in quite a tangible way as we come to the end of the book of Esther to think through what it looks like to live a life that is celebrating God's great rescue, his amazing generosity to us in all of the reversals that he's brought about through Jesus. 
knowing that our very existence hangs on his provision. I think that's when it it really gets tangible for us to think through what does it look like for me to live a life of generosity in response. It's actually something very private. Most of us don't tend to share our spending habits and our bank balances with others. But it is something as we stand before God to reflect on how we live a life of generosity as a celebration of his generosity to us. And so, through the book of Esther, God points us forward to his great rescue through the ultimate reversal and he calls us to celebrate. Friends, I hope you've enjoyed the, just this three weeks of being able to unpack this, this, this unusual book of the Bible, one of only two where God isn't even mentioned, one that uh, rarely makes it into a preaching program, one that many of us might not have had the chance to read before. It was written in a very different time, in a very different place. But I deliberately called this series for such a time as this. Because over these three weeks, we've seen three key ideas that sum up what God is saying to us in this. Because, well, the book of Esther is written for such a time as this. Today, us, here in 21st century Adelaide. A time when we are called to trust in the promises of God a time when we are called to act boldly as the people of God and a time to celebrate the great rescue, the generous reversals that God has brought about through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, you have been so kind to take us from death to life, from life as your enemies to life as your children. Father, you have done this through the great reversal as the sinless Lord Jesus took the penalty for our sin upon himself. As the one who is the very author of life took upon himself the death that we deserve to die. Father, you have been so kind to us and so we give you thanks And we ask that you would help us to celebrate this every day of our lives. That is not too big a thing to ask, that you would so imprint on our minds your great generosity to us, that this wouldn't be an annual festival, but actually a daily celebration of your grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus, that that would so shape all of our lives, that we would live by faith in your promises, that that we would act boldly as your people, And we pray that in your kindness, you might work through us to help many more come to know the great rescue that you offer them too. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.